that new birth, that birth from above, that can only be instituted and conformed and confirmed, that is, by Jesus Christ and the Spirit that he sends, by that one who is above, that one who comes not from normal, ordinary, earthly origins, but instead who has his origin, even his eternality in the heavenly realms. It is his authority by which the Spirit can come, can blow where it wills, and can bring new life, regeneration, change of heart, mind, spirit, and soul to truly look for and cling to the things of God. Having revealed that to Nicodemus, we see that this is the next conversation in these line of conversations that will spring up in response to the revelation of the word of God, the light, the one who brings this new birth. We see that Jesus moves from Jerusalem. He moves from outside of it to the countryside. Perhaps he had created such a stir that it was time for him to abandon that holy city and instead go into the rural area surrounding it. But more likely, what we see here is that Jesus' Judean ministry, that time that the synoptics do not record for us, but that John gives us insight to, that time in which Jesus spent significant ministry hours in the south of God's original promised land in Judea, that time is drawing to a near near to a close, that is. That time is ending. The rejection that he will receive here, as John will profess later on in this passage, is growing to its completion. And so instead he moves north. And we see here that he moves up into the region where John is. And we see that John describes him as administering baptism. Now you'll remember in chapter 4, we'll get to in a little bit, that Jesus will say that he does not baptize. So presumably what's happening here is that Jesus is authorizing baptism through his disciples. So it's his disciples that are administering this baptism on his behalf with his own authority. It's no less legitimate because they come with the authority of Christ. And they are baptizing in the same vicinity as John is. Presumably because the water is plentiful here. This original location of Anon near Salim is not exactly known, but it's guessed that it's in the region of Samaria, which will explain and set up the next conversation that Jesus is going to have that we will look at next week with the Samaritan woman. He is in those regions. He is in those environs. And John himself has moved from the other side of the Jordan into the land of God proper, into that promised land. And he is baptizing there, north of Jerusalem. Now notice so, John gives us an important note. John the evangelist, that is. That people keep coming to John the Baptist for baptism. Despite his testimony to the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Despite his identification of that Messiah who has come from heaven. Whose sandal he is not even worthy to untie the strap from. Despite that, people are still coming to John to be baptized, and he's baptizing them. He's not been imprisoned yet. He's not been taken by Herod. His ministry is still active. But as we will see, it is a ministry that is diminishing, and now it is a ministry that is pointing backwards rather than forwards. Backwards to that one that he's already called those, to other, those others, that is, to follow. 
But in the midst of this, in the midst of his baptizing activity, which certainly is accompanied by this identification of Jesus, clearly he must. You would imagine that John, having seen the Messiah himself, as he is baptizing individuals that are coming to him, you have to know what he's doing. He's saying, I baptize you in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, but you cannot stop and stay with me here. This is not your end point. It wasn't like it was before, where you might stay and reside in my surrounding regions, and I could preach from the Old Testament, and I could anticipate anticipate the coming of the Messiah. Instead, you know what he's saying. He's saying, I am baptizing you in preparation to receive the Messiah, that true king of Israel who comes from heaven. But he's not me and he's not here. You have to go find him elsewhere. And in the midst of this, a debate springs up between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew regarding purification rites. It's difficult to know exactly what the nature of this debate is. Whether or not people were confused about how John's baptism still coincided with ritual washing and purification that was advocated in the Old Testament, but Old Testament, but was also done by various sects throughout the Promised Land, such as at Qumran, from which we see the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know that there are lots of different washings and ritual purification going on in this area. Perhaps there was some confusion about how John's baptism fit into those rites, or how it was different, how it was similar. But more likely what's happening here is that there is confusion between Jesus' baptizing and John's baptizing. Remember, that's our context here. Jesus' disciples are baptizing. John is baptizing. So somebody, a Jew who clearly has interest in these different rites that are being administered in a close proximity, probably goes and asks John's disciples, how are they different? What's the difference between Jesus and John? Which baptism is superior? Which teacher, which rabbi is superior? And you can catch as John's disciples, the Baptist disciples, come to him, that they're a little irked by this, aren't they? They don't receive this questioning. They don't receive this controversy with the amount of grace that their master will. They say, Rabbi, the man who was with you across the Jordan, the one about whom you have been testifying, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Notice that they don't even say his name. Does that strike you? I don't know how much import to put into it. I don't know how much it is that there's a specificity here in identifying exactly who it is. But there's something about the absence of Jesus' name that strikes me. Perhaps this is reinforced because last night I was watching a video with some about the episode of the prodigal son. Where after the prodigal son returns and the father gives him his coat the signet ring, and then slays the fatted calf for that festival. The older son is quite enlivened. Like, I mean, he's quite livid, right? He's angry at this. And when he has that confrontation with his father, right, he, he seems so dismissive of his father's son. He can't say my brother. He can't say the name of his brother, right? He can barely acknowledge that there's some type of relationship there. And I get the sense that there's something like that going on here. They approach John as rabbi, which is a term of respect. 
for someone with authority over them. But I don't think we should miss the fact that Jesus himself is being called rabbi at the same time. So there's some type of competition here. Why is it, they asked, if you are the one who has come before, if you are the older, the one whose ministry has presumably been taking place for longer, the one who actually baptized that individual. Notice, they emphasize that. The one who you testified to, who you have the authority to identify as the Messiah, who you have the authority to baptize. Well, that one is competing with you. There are people that are coming to us. And they are wondering why you continue on in this very important ministry that has been put forward and licensed by God on high. What are you going to do about it, Master? Are you going to set this other one straight? Are you going to make a non-competition, a non-competing clause here that you cannot continue to do this in the same vicinity? That you have to work in different ways? That baptism is your priority? That that was the thing that you were doing first? And you have some type of copyright or license to the principle. They want to know. There's a certain level of envy that is radiating from them. They've been challenged on it. And this is their response. But notice how John answers. He says, no one can receive even a single thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Notice the humility that is lavished out in that response. John is saying that the entire validity, force, and purpose of my ministry is not self-originating. I am not the one that ever had license or claim to it based on my own authority. It is a complete gift of God. He lumps it in with every single gift that this universe has ever received from God. Remember how James will tell us that every good gift comes from above. This is a way to say every good gift comes from God. And for John, his ministry is no exception. You'll remember that when he was questioned by those delegations from Jerusalem, by those who consisted of Pharisees or religious leaders, scribes. The exact composition varied. But when they questioned him and they asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, no. Are you the prophet that Moses anticipated would be greater than him? He said, no. They asked him if in any way he would perform that mediator role between God and man. And John could say, no, I am that one that Isaiah in chapter 40 said was only come to prepare the way to make straight that path in the wilderness for the coming of the true Son of God, the true Messiah, the true mediator. And in the face of this temptation to take up something more for himself, to consolidate his ministry, his membership, if you will, to take that little part and make it into his own kingdom, to reflect the gift that God had given him to make it shine and reflect upon his own effort. What does he do? He takes that opportunity and he throws it away. He will have none of it. He will have none of it. Instead, in humility, he recognizes that his role is secondary and only ever had authority based on the one to whom he testified. 
It's a beautiful, it's something for us to remember. In all of our efforts for the kingdom of God, whether great or small, we should be reminded that each and every one of those efforts, each and every one of those gifts that God promises to lavish out to us, that for the fulfillment of his gospel ministry and the expansion of his kingdom, we are completely dependent upon God for it. And that we've got to keep in our hearts and in our minds. It's not just our regeneration, as Jesus had described it in chapter 3, that is fully and completely dependent on the one who is from above. But it is every gift and every consequence that follows from that regeneration that is completely dependent upon the grace of God. There is no place, no place for hubris, for hubris, for arrogance, for taking any work, deed, thought, or imagination that we might have and locating its importance and its consequence in ourselves. And that will always be a temptation for you and me. It will always be a temptation that we are going to try to turn what are God's good gifts. And we are going to try to turn the focus and the glory, even if it's just a sliver. And let me tell you, that's the hard part, right? There's always way that, ways that we're going to try to justify it. That we're going to try to just shave off just a little part and say, this is for me. This is mine. Right? This reflects upon something that is inherently, organically special in me. And to remove it from its rightful place in the glory of God. I'm telling you, it, we all go through it. I am probably more guilty than anybody else at it. But what John expresses is that what makes him special, what makes him fulfilled, what makes him satisfied and content, what gives any type of power and thrust to his ministry is completely foreign and external to him. He works out the will of God by the grace of God alone. What a model for us in the face of that temptation a significant temptation. He passes. I'm reminded of a time. Some of you will know that I like the Lord of the Rings, right? I like Tolkien's materials. Um, and so in his legendarium, there is a moment here. If you've seen that, just show of hands, because if, if nobody knows what I'm talking about, I might as well not continue with analogy. I've done that in the past. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, right? Okay. I think I got enough where I can continue. If you haven't read the books, you might have seen the movies, you know, so it's not completely foreign to you. I see, Gabe, you're really perking up here. I know you like those books, right? Um, so there is a moment where Frodo, he's got the ring, right? The ring. And he, on his journey, he's already passed through the Misty Mountains, and they've already gone through various adventures. They've lost Gandalf's fellowship, and they're in the realm of Galadriel. So they're in the realm of what is, for those of you who know the legendarium, the most powerful person on earth at that point. And Frodo, knowing what comes before him, he has to go to Mordor. He has to go to that realm of wickedness and evil where the enemy dwells, where every force is at his disposal to capture and to take him and to return the ring to its owner, to Sauron. Right? It, with that in front of him, he offers the, the ring to Galadriel. He offers it to her. He says, you take this. You're older. You're wiser. You're stronger. By every intensive purpose, you should be the one to bear this ring and to carry out this task. You'll do it better than me. And there's that temptation there. 
For all she has to do is grab that ring and her supremacy, her fame, her status will be immediately elevated beyond anything that she's ever experienced, which is significant for someone of such background, of such power, of such status as hers. And in that moment, she resists that temptation. And at that point, she realizes that she can fulfill her destiny. She can wane. Right? She, at that point, she knows that she's completed her task and that she can diminish in her place and her role in Middle Earth and cross back over the sea. And in it, she takes joy and contentment that she hadn't had, you know, from those who have read it, she hadn't had for millennia because she diminished. You see, that's similar to what John has here. His whole ministry is bound up with Jesus. And he's joyful that that ministry is ending. Notice what he says here in verses 29 and following. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands by listening for the bridegroom is overjoyed at the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine is now complete. He who must increase, he must increase, but I must decrease. I'm going to read to you a few passages. One from Isaiah 62. You can guarantee that John knew this. This is Isaiah 62, verses 4 through 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, speaking of Israel, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you, Israel, shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Paul will tell us of this fulfillment when he says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus is the proper bridegroom. John himself, as our sermon title says, he'll always be the groomsman, but he'll never be the bridegroom. But it's in that dispensation of role that he finds his fullest joy and his fullest contentment. Because you want to know the truth? John would have no ministry without this Jesus, and he would have no part as being part of that bride, being part of that body of Christ, if he were to somehow subvert his task and that, that goal, that path for redemption would in any way suffer or be diminished through it. You see, John's greatest hope, his greatest hope is in Jesus fulfilling this role as bridegroom. As the evangelist will tell us, it's only his it's only Jesus' right and authority to do so. Because he is from above. A reminder, John now proceeds in verses 31 through 36 on an extended description of this role of Jesus. See, he takes John's words and he's going to show you. He's going to give you some type of interpretation, some type of explanation, perhaps an exp explanation that he re had received from Jesus himself as he sat under that ministry. Perhaps it is the words that Jesus might have uttered to him. 
as report of this exchange came to him from John's camp. Perhaps Jesus said these very things to him, and now he's reporting them to us, that Jesus is the one who is from above. He is the only Son of God, the only one with authority to take up this mantle of redemption. Notice, he has received the testimony of God. He is the only one who contains and holds the word of God. You need look nowhere else, not to John the Baptist, not to anything outside of the word of Christ, which for us has been brought to us by his apostles. It is there that you will find the words from the one who is above, the one who God has given his spirit to an immeasurable liberty. In other words, without measure, in complete fullness. Because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You see, those gifts that the Son has by right, those gifts that the Son has by virtue of his relationship to his Father, we only ever receive them in the same way that we receive every grace, every good thing, every single thing, from God. It's in the same way. It's by grace alone as it's executed in Jesus Christ alone. You see, because whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's no hope in John the Baptist. There's no hope in anywhere else you will look to find satisfaction, to find contentment, as others have said before me, to find anything that can bear the fullness of your soul in joy and delight and eternal life. You must look to Christ alone. And it's not something that you're going to see happen very often in this world. Notice that John himself will say that those, that many people have not received the testimony of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he will use hyperbole and he'll say that no one receives his testimony. We know that, that he's not speaking specifically here about individuals. He's speaking generally. This is an exception to the rule. People want to go after the John, of the John the Baptist. They want to go after other followers. They want to find those who will take a little bit of that glory for themselves and will some way disseminate it to them. But that only brings destruction because whoever rejects the Son Whoever does not put full, unfiltered, unadulterated trust and submission to this one who is from above, on that person, the wrath of God is continually resting. Notice, what John is saying is not that that's just going to happen in the future. Certainly that's going to come. There will be an ultimate judgment in where that wrath will be consummated. But John is emphasizing that that wrath already rests upon that individual now. That judgment is taking place even now. Remember, the light comes into the darkness. That darkness is already proliferating. It takes that amazing grace from the one who is above to administer his spirit in the way that his baptism anticipated. To change that dark and dreary heart that has no desire to receive him and instead to believe in the Son. It is a good gift of grace. Have you received it? Have you received that gift something outside of yourself
that comes only from the Son, only for His glory, so that you might have eternal life. Let's pray. This has been a message from Justin Estrada, Senior Pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the PCA located in the heart of Kingsville, Maryland.